So what happens when expectations don't match up to reality? Like, have, have any of you had that happen? And this is actually like crowdsourcing my opening storytelling. Um, like, have you ordered from Wish.com or something like that, or Amazon, and you had the idea of what things was going to be, and then it showed up, and it was significantly different? Or maybe you had different expectations out of a job or a career, and then you got in there and you found out it was not all that you expected it to be. Maybe. Maybe it's something positive. So maybe, um, just take myself. I went into last night thinking that my college football team, I went in with very low expectations. And then that team beat Brent, our group's director's team. Uh, and we were quite excited about that with my fellow Gators in the room. It was enjoyable. And so my expectations exceeded, or were exceeded by the results that were put on the field. Or maybe, maybe you're a big soccer fan, and you were hoping that you would see Messi last night in the stadium, and then so many were disappointed when he didn't show. But the results of the Atlanta United game was still really positive. But um, yeah, these expectations that sometimes they just aren't met. They just don't align. And sometimes we have expectations that just don't play out. And I think that's what's happening in the story today, particularly around John the Baptist. But what do we know about John? Let's remember back multiple chapters. What are some of the things, like what did he say about Jesus? What are some of the things that John declared about Jesus in the story? Yeah, he seems to, he seems to definitely think Jesus is the Messiah. What are some of the other things he said? Yeah, in, in, in the Gospel of John, it's like the first thing, behold, the Lamb of God has taken away the sins of the world. It's a great one. What else? He says something about his sandals, right? Yeah, he's not, not even worthy to tie his sandals. Also in the Gospel of John, he, he actually, John will tell some of his own followers, his own disciples, to go and follow Jesus instead. It's like, you guys are following me, but this, this is the guy. Like, John is confident. And not only that, but he's equated with Elijah. He's actually wearing like an Elijah costume, more or less, in the storyline. Um, and people are calling him the Elijah. This is John. And then we encounter this story, and it's kind of a, an abrupt one. So when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And then when John heard in prison, what did he hear about? Heard about the deeds of the Christ. So there's even an affirmation, deeds of the Messiah. He sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? So in prison, this man who up till now in almost every gospel seems to be the most confident that Jesus is exactly who he is. He seems to be the most confident to identify Jesus exactly who he is. And now he sits here, and he's questioning now, we just had a, a speech for the last chapter and a half, the end of chapter 9 and chapter 10. But before that, we had multiple deeds of the disciples, probably things that John had heard about. What was some of the stuff that we encountered between the end of the Sermon on the Mount and the last speech that just happened? What was Jesus doing? Yeah, healing, healing all sorts of different people. What else happened in some of those chapters? Who, or who was he healing? What are some of the stories that we remember? Yeah, there's blind, demon-possessed people. 
What was that? Leprosy, Leprosy yeah. Even a, even a girl who had died, yeah, blind people. But it's not just the, 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 the kinds of healings, but it's also like the, the who are the, 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 the people connected to it. And so he's healing like a centurion servant. And even after that, we'll speak about the centurion, a Roman centurion, and say, nowhere in all of Israel have I seen such faith. Or he'll go to the other side of the lake, to the Decapolis, to the Gentile world, drive out a, a, a demon and a demon-possessed man. He'll call a tax collector, somebody who's definitely in cahoots with Rome as one of his followers. So these are the deeds. And he's speaking about mercy. He tells people to love their enemies. Like, these are the deeds that John hears about. And I think it's in here that he sits and he's like, what is going on? And I think John is disoriented and perhaps even disappointed. This isn't the Messiah that I thought he was going to be. Now, I think it's helpful to know that what was very common among sort of Second Temple Judaism, which is the Judaism of Jesus' time, is what's called a, a two-age, um, two two-stage, uh, what's called eschatology, which is sort of how, how the, the ends play out. It's a theology of like how the ends come to be. And so the, the common thought was that we live in a current age, and this age is messy and broken and sin, and there's outside groups oppressing us and all this kind of stuff. That's the current age. And then there's the age to come, the last days. And in that, there is full restoration, there's shalom again. The Messiah will reign and Israel will be put back into its place as the crown of all the nations and everything will be wonderful. And the transition point will be when the Messiah shows up. That was the expectation. It was very, very common. You gotta imagine why that would be popular too, right? If you're sitting there with the boot on your throat and from the Romans, you are ready <laughs> for that age to come. You are ready for the corrupt priesthood in, down in Jerusalem to be kicked out or to be cleaned. You're ready for Rome to be gone, and you're ready for it. So it's super popular. So current age, Messiah, age to come. And there were a lot of thoughts on what that Messiah would look like. Um, there was a lot of thoughts on the Elijah character. So there's Old Testament prophecies to say, hey, there's going to be one who comes to, to herald, to sort of usher in the Messiah when he comes. He's going to proclaim these. He's going to make way. He's going to prepare the way for this king. And so you have this sort of moment. And, and we see this in John. He's sort of like the axe is at the, the root of the tree and God has his winnowing fork in his hand. He has this very much like, this is it. This is the final moment. And, and, the, and the kingdom of God's about to come. This is the last train leaving the station. So repent. This is what's going to happen. The Romans are going to be dealt with. God's going to restore his kingdom. Let's go get on the train. And that's very much the John the Baptist kind of message. And then Jesus comes and he starts healing Romans and Gentiles, and calling tax collectors, and speaking of forgiveness, and mercy, and all these things. And I think it's hard for John to understand how this all works. And Jesus answered them, so he answers John's disciples. He says, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive the sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. So he says, go tell John all the miracles that you are seeing in here. And 
It's important to note uh, in Hebrew, um, we, we, have, we have multiple words in Hebrew that we actually just all call judgment. Um, we just translate them all the same. Um, but there was, there was an idea of judgment that was very much, um, it's, it's, it's din. It's this idea that everything that's wrong is going to be dealt with. going to be dealt with immediately. It's going to be washed clean and wiped out. And then there's the idea of mishpah, which is actually a, probably a more common uh, term. And it's very much an idea of restoration. That the, the crooked things are going to start being made straight. That what was broken is going to be fixed. And it's much more an idea, of, like I said, of restoration. And even Jesus would say things that would probably make someone like John a little bit uncomfortable, where he says, like, I have not come to condemn the world. And we see this. And then we see John, Jesus teach in his parables a little bit about a, a sort of restoration time, right? Like, he talks about the kingdom of God. We're about to get into a bunch of parables. And he'll say the kingdom of God is like this really small thing. What's that really small thing? Mustard seed, right? Now, mustard seed is, is tiny. It's not the smallest of all seeds. So if you're worried about the scientific evidence of Jesus being accurate, it, it's goofy. It's, anyways, mustard seed. But a mustard seed is like a weed. And it just spreads. And there's kind of no stopping it. It's actually kind of a, a, a pain it's, it, um, in some ways. And, and so it's the seed that just kind of spreads like a, like a weed. And, and then he's like, right after that, he's like, the kingdom of God is like this woman who makes bread. It's just massive amounts of bread. And the kingdom is like a, something small in the story. It's like, it's like uh, the yeast. It's like this little bit that pervades the whole bread. It's like, and it's so much different than, I think, the picture that so many, uh, particularly John, would, would have in mind. So I think John, who lives in this two-part, this immediate thing about the kingdom, is struggling with Jesus, who's like, no, 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 John, you're misunderstanding. What I've come to bring is probably what would be called more of a three-part. You have the current age and all of its mess that we all live in. We have the age to come when everything is fully restored. And I think Jesus will teach, and we'll see this, in the, particularly in the upcoming parables that he's about to teach, that those two ages have much more overlap than most expected. That there's going to be moments that the kingdom is going to be moving, and there's also still going to be death and sin. And it's the age that so many of us live in. And it's interesting, um, because, yeah, John just comes with this certain eschatology around axes and winnowing forks and fire and judgment and, and, and all these sort of images. And then Jesus comes and he's like, you know what it's going to be like? Like the small stuff. Like you can't even see it, but once it's in there, it's going to go everywhere. And, and, and Jesus will go on to list some things for John here. And, and they're all straight out of Isaiah. It's as if saying, yes, John, I have come. Like Isaiah spoke about these days. You are right, John. And, and, and this is what is happening. Because what Isaiah said was things like the eyes, uh, people that are blind are able to see, and people that, uh, um, who can't hear can hear, and lame will walk, and lepers cleanse, and captives will be set free, and it'll be good news for the poor. But what on that list did Jesus leave out? Well, what did I just list? The captives will be set free. Jesus lists just about every other thing that Isaiah identifies except for that one. And I think it's a fully rabbinic way for, for him to address John here and say, John, I love you. I love you. But you missed some things. 
and John, I'm not going to let you out of prison. That's not how the story's going to end. I'm sorry, cousin. Your eschatology is a little off. I'm not rescuing you. And I think that's why he will say, and blesses the one not offended by me. I think that's the invitation to John to say, oh, God, gosh, John, if this doesn't offend you, how blessed you are. Now, hear me. We don't know how John responds. I, like, I'm hopeful. John's like, man, that's a hard pill to swallow, but he is the Messiah. We just don't know. Um, but that, that's the response. Because the kingdom's just not exactly what John the Baptist expected it to be. And let's be real. We struggle with this still to this day. Like, I think it's really easy to point out prosperity gospel preachers and be like, yeah, like all that promising of health and wealth and all that kind of stuff. It, it's, it's just not quite what the gospel speaks of. And yet, I think most of us can still function with a prosperity gospel, just a very subdued version of it. We overlay certain expectations of comfort and circumstances in our lives, certain kind of blessings. And when God doesn't deliver as we expect on those things, we really struggle. We find it devastating. Right? There's so much that's not actually promised. Like, you can do the most amazing job parenting. You can lead all the family devotions you want. You can pray for your children every day. You can do all that kind of stuff. And your child may still grow up and be wayward. So promise. Like, you can maintain holiness with your body and faithfully pray for God to bring you a spouse and have all the right criteria of what you want that spouse to be. And it may never come. And you can have obediently lived out your faith in the workplace, having sought just and right and good things in the workplace to be above board and to represent God well and still never get the promotion. Is it okay? And I think that's the struggle for John the Baptist. God, I thought you were going to do this. I thought this was going to be the moment when everything got made right. And Jesus, you're telling me that your kingdom may not quite look like that. Is it okay? And we do this. We build all sorts of kingdoms. We build political kingdoms where... If our candidate isn't elected, then that's the work of the devil. And if our candidate it was, he's clearly the man of God. And we build these things. And then we're disappointed when they don't turn out. We're still, like I said, the, the comfort. That, that there's sort of this expectation that my circumstances should be getting better because I have this relationship with God. And then they don't. Certainly they did not for John the Baptist. Certainly they did not for any of Jesus' disciples. And we build our kingdoms. And sometimes they just don't match what Jesus is actually in and about. And we may be missing out on the very things Jesus is actually trying to show us. Because his kingdom is coming, whether we see it or not. Like the kingdom is coming, whether John the Baptist understood it fully or not. And I love how Jesus, I think, really honors his cousin too. It says, as they went away, this is John, John the Baptist's disciples, as they are leaving, not after they left, not, it is like probably still within earshot, as they were leaving, Jesus says this to the crowds. What did you go see the wilderness? A reed shaken by the wind? 
What did you go see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he whom is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare the way before you. So what did you expect? You expect like the soft, fluffy clothed good man to build you up? No, it was a man full of fire and passion. You came to John because he was a prophet and spoke without fire. And he may have gotten some stuff wrong, but he was exactly who you said he was. And he is exactly who God appointed for that moment. Which is, I mean, this is a side note. That's wonderful news. Like, I can still be, you can still be who God appoints you in a moment and you still miss the point, right? And that's amazing. And that's who it is for John. He is Elijah. He was still ushering in the things of God. Now, remember, let's remember Elijah a little bit because I think there's so many wonderful parallels in the story. What, what, um, what was Elijah's like Mount Carmel story? I remember, remember. What happened? Yeah, the Baal prophets. Thanks, Richard. Yeah, so you had this Elijah character, and he is like a firebrand. He just is. And he's like, I'm the only prophet left in Israel. And all these people are worshiping these, these other gods, and they have their own prophets. And, and basically, they have like a, a throwdown um, to see which prophets are better. And, and through circumstances, Elijah wins in the moment. And, um, and it, it's like clear that the God of Israel is the, the one true God in the storyline. But what changes? Like nothing. And Elijah's probably like, oh, great. Now, now this is when everyone will realize that God's the real deal. And then nothing really changes. And then the queen basically wants to kill Elijah and he has to go on the run. And then he's hiding in a cave and God sends this spectacular storm and an earthquake and all these kind of big fiery things, just like Elijah's personality. And the lesson there is that God wasn't in all the big things. He was in the still small voice. And God reminds Elijah, he goes, and guess what? There are thousands of faithful followers of me that still like, Elijah, I love your fire, but you've kind of missed it a little bit. <laughs> and there's still plenty of faithful people in this world who are still followers of me. And I think the same is happening here for John the Baptist. It's like, John, I love your fire. You are just who you were supposed to be, but you still missed it a little bit. You still missed out on exactly what I am doing here. And there's so many cool parallels of the individuals. And then uh, Jesus goes on to say, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And that's a pretty ringing endorsement, if I say so myself. Um, it's amazing. But before everybody starts making a celebrity out of John the Baptist, yet the one who is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And so Jesus, even before everybody starts praising John again, flips the kingdom upside down and says, my kingdom is really not about greatness, at least not in the world's standards. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, I'm going to sound like a dead record or not dead record. What's the <laughs> repeating record, whatever? Broken record. So it just keeps going around, around, around. Yeah, that makes sense. Dead records don't do anything. Um, I'm going to sound like a broken record. Um, but we have some translation issues again. 
So we get to this word violence. And, and if you have the ESV and NIV, and almost all of them have a footnote that says, we don't totally know exactly what to do with this word. And so you have this word violence. And the difficulty that the biazzo word there is that, sure, there are times it does mean violence. That's totally fine. But there's also times it doesn't mean violence at all um, or, or implies something completely different. And it's frustrating. And translators have to decide what to do with it. We also have the difficulty is that Jesus likely taught in um, Hebrew or Aramaic and not probably in Greek. And so they're making Greek choices of words to match Hebrew words. And we have the Septuagint and other words so we can see sometimes how people drew those connections. This word has a, has a Hebrew comparison. And the Hebrew word actually um, will sometimes mean like an explosive going forth. Um, it's used around like childbirth and stuff like that in, in the scriptures. And so I don't, I don't say like, when they had the baby, it was like the baby came out in violence. Um, no, but the language is like it sort of exploded out, came, came forth in a rush. Um, and so, I mean, it, it might have been violent, but I don't know. Um, I've been around for a few childbirths, so it's a little bit violent. Um, there's definitely blood. Um, but, but that sort of rushing forth. And I think this idea and how to translate this word actually has a little more traction because Jesus had just quoted Micah just before this. And Micah's not a very long book. And one of the images that's tied into John the Baptist in Micah is this, Micah 2. I will surely assemble you. So God's speaking to Israel about this time after captivity. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in a pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He, so this, this is the, the Elijah character brought in by most interpreters. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass through the gate. So they, they bust forth. There's an explosive going forth, going out by it. And their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. So Micah's saying, look, God's going to gather his people. They're going to be like sheep in a sheepfold. But I'm going to send one who's going to kick open the gate. And the kingdom at that point is going to start bursting forth, led by their king. That's the image. And in case we need help understanding this image, I have a video for us. So if you've ever been on a farm in the north, which most of us have not, but uh, through winter, often animals are kept inside for like most of the winter. And then at springtime, they're finally let out and they go crazy. Here's a video of cows being let out and going crazy. cows can actually move like that. It's so awesome. But they're so excited to be out of the, the fold, out of their captivity. And I think that's the image that Micah's speaking to. It's like God's saying, look, I'm going to come and it's going to feel like you are just held captive. And I'm going to send John. He's going to bust open this kingdom. And the kingdom is going to be like people running out, jumping for joy and experiencing all that God has for the kingdom led out by their king. 
That's, that's the image that I think actually Jesus is pointing to speaking of this, that from the days of John the Baptist until now, so since John the Baptist has shown up on the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven has been like exploding open. And the explosive people, the people who are on the front, the cows that are right ready to go, not the cow that's like still really comfortable sitting in the back of the pen who's not interested in the field yet. All those who are just ready to go are taking hold of it. And all the prophets and all the law prophesied until John, if they were willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. That's the picture. And the question is, will we take hold of it too? Or are we in the back of the pen stall? As God continues to do kingdom work in this world, will we be the people going, I just want to go. I just, God, I just want to be a part of whatever it is you are doing. And I want to be, I want to be dancing like a cow. <laughs> I want to go and be celebrating. Because that's, that's what we're invited into. Um, he, he closes with, he who has ears to hear, let him hear which sometimes can be taken as like those of us who have the spirit will understand this. But I, I don't know. I, I'm starting to think that what Jesus means by that is if, you, if you've heard this, like those who have ear to hear are the ones who actually do the work, who, who go, you know what, Jesus, there's probably so much depth to what you just said. I need to study. I need to, I need to think about it. I need to, 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 to meditate on that some more. Because we'll see that in the soils, but we'll deal with that story in a couple weeks. So, the kingdom's coming forth, and I think the invitation is not to miss it. Verse 16. But to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children singing in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. I think in this text, text um, Jesus is actually very culturally engaged. I would argue that he's uh, quoting Aesop's fables. Um, so, if you grew up in school and learned about Aesop's fables. I think that's what Jesus is doing here. He's just connecting it to stories that many of them would have heard or known. And one of those is sort of this Pied Piper character, uh, the one who plays a flute and everybody sort of follows around creatures, respond to the, to the piper. In one of the stories, there's this lake and it's supposed to, it's threatened to be dried out. And the piper comes and, and plays, but the fish don't respond. And ultimately, the disaster comes, the lake dries, and as the fish are gasping for their final breath, the piper says, I tried to save you, and you didn't respond. I, I played a happy song, and you didn't dance. I played a sad song, and you didn't mourn. And I think that's what's happening here. This generation, uh, uh, and, and John the Baptist, Jesus, others, coming and speaking about salvation. But they're not responding. They're not awake. They weren't ready for the exploding of the kingdom into the world, and they're starting to miss it. It's right there in front of them, and they're missing out. They're singing all sorts of songs, and yet not responding. It says in verse 18, For John came neither eating or drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, the glutton and drunkard, a friend of tax collectors. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. And I think Jesus is saying, It doesn't matter what we send you, it seems. Like John came the way John did. Repentance and fire and fasting, all this stuff. All, all sort of the fire and brimstone stuff that John the Baptist brought to the table. And yet, so many of you didn't respond to that. That was the kingdom bursting forth. 
He kicked open the gate. And I come as Messiah, and I come with mercy. I come with compassion. I come eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. I come for forgiveness. I come for all of those things. And yet, you guys weren't interested in that either. It doesn't matter what we sin. You get the dirge with John, you get the happy song with me, and it still is not making a difference. And this is my worry at times, too. Because hear me, Jesus is speaking to a very religious crowd, prayed to God every day, waiting on the Messiah, read their scriptures, sang songs about deliverance all the time. Did it all. And yet when God was right before their eyes, they're missing it. And I worry at times, will we do the same? Will we miss out on the incredible things God is doing in and through his kingdom and his church and some of the things that we can't even define because it just doesn't match our expectations of how God works? And we miss him. I mean, it reminds me a little bit of the Sermon on the Mount, the good eye and the bad eye. Will we have the eye, to, the good eye, the, the, the generous light to, to see you through hope what God is doing? Um, I, want to, I want us to, to wrap up um, with a little bit of reflection, particularly on this message. This is just a moment to, to sort of ask. Ask God to help us. Because um, there's not a, here are the five steps to not miss the kingdom. It just doesn't exist. But I also want us to be aware, to have heightened sense of what God is doing, that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear. And so I want to invite up Sarah to kind of lead us in a time of prayer as we transition to reflect on this text, on this word.